Welcome to Catholic Economics. I'm your host, Levi Russell, and today is August 2nd, 2020. Today, I'm really excited to have my friend Francis here to talk about the historical origins of German economic policy. And that may not sound very interesting, but Francis has a very specific um, argument or has, has, a, has a specific kind of interesting take on uh, the way German economic policy works and how it's um, its relationship to sort of what, what a Catholic ideal would be. And so, you know, obviously with this show, we're always trying to build uh, ideas about economic policy around social teaching of the church and not the other way around. Um, and I think the other way around is where we get these ideas that, uh, you know, Marxism is a good idea or, uh, you know, that Milton Friedman's ideas about capitalism are totally Catholic bro or whatever. So today, Francis is going to talk with us about this German economic policy. So what would you say, Francis, that what is it about German economic policy today that you think kind of fits in line with Catholic social teaching? And obviously, it's not going to be perfect. But what do you think what do you think they're getting right? Right. So I guess I'll start with like I, my thesis, if you want to call it that, is that I think maybe not so much today, but. Back in, I guess you could say, maybe the Cold War era, post-war West Germany, the German economy was built in a way that I think is the best of both worlds in a sense that it is the most pragmatic, at least today, in, 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 the, in what we've seen so far. It's the most pragmatic application of Catholic and broadly Christian moral and social principles applied to political economy. So if I could if I could sum it up, I would say that the German economy, the idea of the social market, is the most practical, pragmatic form of distributism, is what I would say, uh, that we can look at as an example today. Uh, specifically, I'd say its emphasis the the three major principles are on solidarity, subsidiarity, and corporatism, which are three principles we very much so believe in. I think you would agree that we'd want – if we were given the reins of power and able to build an economic system, those are the three principles we'd primarily build it off of. Yeah, I, and, I think maybe the, the corporatism one some people might not agree with, but right, I, right. My, as, I, as I read more and more about, for instance, the, the constitution of Dolphus, uh, Dolphus's Austria, yeah. um, I get, I, I'm, I'm starting to understand – this idea a little better and, and I'm, I'm warming up to it in a sense. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I would say on like, there's kind of two or three sides to the, you know, the Catholic economics debate. You have the liberals in the classical sense, you have the anti-liberals in the sense of uh, Dolphus and Salazar, and then you have, you know, your, your Tridentista left cats, obviously. So you have your left cats who are obviously the pariah, but I would say the, when it comes to – because we have to find a compromise point, right? In America, it's just not feasible that we're going to get like a Dolphus constitution corporate system or something like Salazar with the you know new state or anything like that. We're, we have to work within the confines of kind of liberal capitalism, and I think when you look at German economic policy, it is 
the best form of liberal democratic capitalism that you're going to get. It so is, if, I can, if I can sum that up in the way an, an economist would state it, uh, I, I would say that given the constraint that we're going to have to live under uh, liberal capitalism, uh, the the optimal um, <laughs> the optimal function or the optimal uh, you know set of parameters is uh, this this sort of German combination around the time of the Cold War. Yeah, I would argue at least. Uh, I think if if I can, I don't know if you want to go into specifics just yet. If you wanted to give, uh, you know, like a little background on how it came to be, I mean, however you want to take yeah, it. Yeah. So, well, I, I, I think maybe what we could do is just you give me like your what, what you think maybe two or three are the, the most advisable policies that you that 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 existed, you know, in during the Cold War or now or whatever. What, what do you think that the two or three things that they're doing well right now or 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 in that that relatively recent time frame? What, what are those policies? So I think the biggest thing for me is this ruthlessly enforced – maybe not ruthlessly. Maybe that's too harsh of a term, but this very rigorously enforced competitive market, and that screams subsidiarity in the most pragmatic sense to me, where the foundation of the German economy is built off what they call the Mittelstadt, which is medium to small-sized business usually owned by families, uh, employing less than 500 people, making less than, I think, $5 million, uh, every fiscal year. The foundation from the ger- of the German economy is that Mittelstadt, and monopolies, uh, corporate oligarchies are very quickly put down by the government in order to ensure this small business competitive environment. And I think when – say you look at the like the writings of Chesterton or Belloc and – their idea of spreading ownership as widely as possible. It's all very theoretical. You know, There's not a lot of pragmatic, real suggestions, real policy we can build off of. And even if there is, it's a bit outdated. I think when you look at how Germany does it, it is the most up-to-date example we can look at of realistically spreading ownership as wide as possible through making medium, small-sized family businesses the staple of the economy and using the state as a kind of pragmatic interventionist tool to make sure that they have an environment that's fair to them and not let these corporate oligarchies kind of build up and, you know, get this economic hegemony that we kind of see in America. So, Whereas, so maybe more, more briefly stated, you would just say kind of um, a, a robust enforcement of antitrust, kind of similar to um, in the U.S. maybe from 1880 to 1920 or something like that. Yeah, maybe like the to- the Teddy Roosevelt, you know, bull moose progressive era, but enshrined into kind of the economic framework, not just something that can pass from administration to administration. I mean, uh, and and you have to understand that that system is supported by every other adjacent system that feeds into it. So the education system in Germany is another thing that I really like, where it's it's very complicated, but it's consists of two parts primarily, uh, lower schooling and upper schooling. So lower schooling is what we would call primary schooling. It's just basic general education that you take until you're about anywhere from like 14 to 16. And then you go to upper schooling, which is either technical school, you go to technical or vocational school, or you attend higher education. And these technical and vocational schools then feed into the middle stat model where you have this, well, relatively large population of very well-trained workers that can go work in these productive industries that the German economy is built to foster. And then you have, you know, your 
higher education or college educated people going to work in say the management of these companies or you know to to the you know the larger corporations your international kind of conglomerates your Volkswagens you know your BMWs all that right you then have on the opposite side of that the way they handle workers rights union protections healthcare again it's all very if I could sum up the German economy, the system in one word, it's pragmatic. It just – what works best, what ensures a sense of class collaboration rather than conflict, and what will make it so that we can continue to feed into this system so that it works optimally because that's – So it's not – There's. It, it seems like – it sounds a lot like – you know, when people talk about German, you know, German engineering and all of this, right? And it's just yeah. very, it's like, who cares what, you know, who cares about the theoretical physics? I just want to know how this thing works. And it, it seems like what you're, what you're getting across here is it's a similar kind of discussion about policy. It's like, who cares about ideology? Uh, you know, I, I don't care. I just, I have this set of goals that I want to meet. And, and I think this is the best way for me to meet those goals. So that's what I'm going to do. Boom. Easy. Yeah. The whole Freiburg School, which is how the you know the school thought that Germany rebuilt its economy after the post-war, was the whole idea of it is how do we use the state to maximize the theoretical output of the market, and that's all we're gonna that's the primary function of the state intervening in the economy is to maximize the theoretical output of the market. So every time anything the state is doing to intervene in the economy is just to not I don't want to say just to maximize efficiency because that sounds a bit productivist and that's not how I would classify it, but it's just the pragmatic use of the state as a tool to ensure the outcomes that yeah, the you, federal you government wants. They have other considerations, like they they're concerned about you know harmony and stuff like this. They're not just concerned right. about you know make GDP go higher kind of yeah. stonks. You know, there's a there's a there's a large focus on subsidiarity too, as I was alluding to earlier, in the sense that Germany is a federal republic, just like ours, the Bundesrepublik, and regional identity is a very big deal in Germany. You know, you're German and you're Bavarian. You know, it's a kind of split national, local, you know, what regional identity. So a lot of this is handled at as low a level as possible. So education, for example, what I gave you was a very kind of broad overview, but education is not the job of the federal government in Germany. It's right. the job of the local regional government, whatever mm. the region decides. Mm. So is best kind of like it's, kind of like here in the U.S. I mean, in, in that yeah, sense, it's, in, in terms of who is governing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's they modeled the federalism, well, mostly off of Weimar, but a lot off of the U.S. system as well. But that's right. the the way the healthcare works too. It's generally hand. It's there. It's a multi-payer system, but regions and uh, employers actually. Have a lot of say over how it works, right? As well as regional regulations and how things are to be governed, tax codes. So there's this large focus on uh, making sure that each federal state has mm. its independence economically protected from the federal government, where the federal government isn't going to get overly involved in it. So there's that strong focus on subsist- uh, subsidiarity, right? Well, that I, I mean, that that does when you put it that way, it, may, it does sound, um, you know, kind of like what what we really I mean, just broadly what we're looking for. And I think, you know, some people would argue that, you know, the U.S., at least to some extent, has that 
same thing built into the Constitution with the Tenth Amendment and with, uh, you know, this there there the this idea that well the Commerce Clause kind of just messed everything up. Like we used to have this kind of regionalist kind of thing, but um, but I think this is a really good time to take a quick break and and mention my sponsor for this this episode um, because we're talking about you know, lo- subsidiarity and local and um, and and I think specifically more about supporting Catholic businesses, which is something I talk about a lot. Um, on the show. So I want to mention uh, Colette's Carvings, which is uh, a business run by a, a good friend of mine. Um, so they make these beautiful wooden plaques for your home. And so they're, they're for uh, all kinds of different, uh, you know, whether it's a gift, maybe you want a wall hanging for, uh, I, I bought a wall hanging from them as a, as a, as a wedding gift to, uh, for a friend of mine. Um, they have uh, saints, uh, custom family, you know, uh, you know, the, the Joneses established, you know, 1995 or whatever, uh, nursery signs. Um, I have a, my, my son is named after St. Francis Xavier. And so we have a, a nursery sign that, that, you know, says St. Francis Xavier, pray for us on it. Um, it's beautiful. And I'm hoping my son, you know, he, he, uh, uh, I guess recovers the Jesuits maybe at one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but they, but their, their, um, their motto is devotionals and decor from your, from our home to yours. Uh, so check them out on Etsy at the link in the show notes. Okay. So I think, Francis, what we want to do, I guess say St. Francis Savior, and now I'm talking to Francis, right? That's great. Yeah. St. Uh, Francis of Assisi, you know, more yeah, specifically right. on this yeah. side, you know, <laughs> okay. got to show yeah. loyalty there you go. to uh, La Patria. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, all this talk about, you know, Northern Europe, it's going to make me sick at some point, but I can I can continue <laughs> on. <laughs> I think I should just I think I should just call you Francis from Philly or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so um, so kind of understanding that Germany, at least at one time in the relatively recent past, had at least the intention of creating something that seemed to fit pretty well within uh, Catholic bounds. And specifically, you mentioned the, the, the education system, which I think I think the the kind of gut reaction from the U.S. on that would be, oh, well, that doesn't sound very individualistic, right? That doesn't sound like, oh, well, I, you know, you're not letting little Susie, you know, flourish as a you know, whatever, making PowerPoints for some, you know, <laughs> megacorp or, you know, yeah. I told Billy he could be the president one day. And, you know, if they're going to if they're going to force him into, you know, this uh, <laughs> this tech school because he has a, you know, 106 IQ, then, uh, you know, he's not going to be president. Um, and then, you know, you, you spoke about the, the antitrust uh, legislation, the antitrust enforcement that was that was very consistent, and strong. And of course, in the U.S., uh, we've seen a massive breakdown in the way antitrust is enforced. I think there are some really innovative, sharp minds on a lot of this stuff. Um, in uh, the, uh, the the Chicago school right now, talking about the way uh, some of these uh, property rights need to work with respect to big tech uh, and things like this. So there's very interesting things out there um, that maybe I'll discuss on a future show. But how how did they get to this point? What what in the the sort of peculiar history of Germany, what brought them to this point? Why is there something specific about Germany that got us to or that got them to the point where they're like, look, we're not worried about individualism. We're not worried about, uh, you know, <laughs> we're not worried about, you know, my GDP. We're going to support the, the medium and small businesses and we're going to make sure that, uh, you know, even if Jimmy uh, is. You know, even if mommy thinks he could be the president, you know, Jimmy just needs to go, uh, you know, bake some bread or something. School. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. 
so I, I first start off by saying political political Catholicism has been so ingrained into Catholic culture going so far back, all the way back to, you know, the Holy Roman Empire and arguably even Charlemagne. It's just the the influence of the Catholic Church uh, ethically and socially is just so inextricably linked to German state building throughout history, even during the kind of dominance of the Protestants during Bismarck's uh, era. So even if Catholicism was never, you know, for a time was not explicitly, you know, the state religion or even during a time during the Kulterkampf was uh, repressed and fought against, there's just this lasting influence that's always been there. But more specifically, with a lot of things regarding the modern German state, the origins of this particular economic and social system go back to Bismarck. So in the 1880s, there was, you know, this rising socialist current throughout Europe, you know, as a reaction to the excesses of, you know, industrial of the Industrial Revolution and, you know, the capitalism of the time. And in an effort to kind of stem those currents and to pull support away from the socialist parties and especially the SPD in Germany, Bismarck instituted a set of policies that have, you know, colloquially become group group as a group have been known as uh Staatssozialismus or state socialism, which I don't think is a very good term. He termed it uh, – I think he called it practical Christianity. It's got a lot of little terms assigned to it, but basically it was a set of legislation passed from the early to late 1880s regarding uh, accident insurance, sickness insurance, old age and disability insurance, uh, laws regarding safety regulation in factories, laws regarding wages, regarding uh, the representation of unions and uh, – Antitrust, making sure that the Junker estates, which were these, you know, big kind of aristocratic uh, corporations, didn't have this domineering power over the German state legislature and over the workers, purely out of the pragmatic reasoning of we don't want the socialist tides to pick up too much steam. So that's where you find the uh, the the start of all this, and that just kind of guided German. Uh, legislation for most of the you know 20th century up until you know the 1930s when you know there was that unfortunate period of time during the Second World War. Uh, you then see after the war a kind of return to this uh, this kind of what was then pragmatic statecraft now under a more ideological grounding. So the first party that took power in Germany after the Nazis was the CDU, the Christian Democratic Union, which was the kind of spiritual successor to the Zentrum or Center Party, which was a explicitly Catholic political party. And the first chancellor of Germany after that war period was Konrad Ardener and his uh, economic uh, advisor Ludwig Erhard. And they were both strict adherents to uh, strict adherents to Christian or Catholic, they were both Protestants, I think, so broadly Christian uh, moral and ethical social teaching. And they tried their best to enshrine that in the state they wanted to build. You know, They were the trailblazers. They got to craft this new German state into what they saw fit. So when they were building it, they explicitly went out to build it with these Christian principles of subsidiarity, solidarity, and to an extent corporatism. So you can – trace these roots back to especially the strong influence that the center party Zentrum had in German the German political sphere for 
in its whole history, it was the second or third largest party in Germany. And the CDU today is still one of the two big parties in Germany, along with the SPD. So this lasting influence of even if Germany is isn't Catholic anymore or even largely Christian, this lasting influence of Christian ethics in the economy has really uh, burrowed itself into the very foundation of the German political economy. Yeah, and that's 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 interesting. That last bit that you say because it, last week on my show, um, I I was talking about Hayek, and uh, in in response to the road to serfdom, I called I, it's kind of a cheesy title, but I called it uh, Hayek's road rage, and <laughs> it's it seems like it seems to fit what you're saying seems to fit with this idea that you know a lot of the things that we like about um, the way things still kind of work now. I mean, even as bad as things are because of the way the the left has really uh, infiltrated so many different things um policy wise what is these these pre-liberal institutions like the importance of the family the primacy of the family um this uh focus on community as some kind of authentic you know uh, uh experience that we have this this um this this part of our lives that isn't isn't our choice right um it seems it seems like you're you're saying that you know it's kind of a similar sort of story here with with germany where you know they the reason why they have some of these good things is because they're still drawing on maybe uncon- maybe sort of subconsciously or unconsciously drawing on these sort of uh christian pre-liberal types of perspectives on these things yeah, that's actually absolutely right. It's, I'm glad you brought up that point. If I can go back to referencing the center party's interim, during uh, the third, during the Weimar period, one of their tagline slogans, whatever you want to call it, was "Verschutz uh, Family Heimat Arbeit das Zentrum," which means roughly who protects the family, the local, the locality. Heimat doesn't really have a direct translation, but it means the region or the state. Uh, who protects the family, the region, and the worker? The center. So these, even in the 30s, you know, I arguably, you know, deeply into the liberal era, we still have the the Catholic Christian Party standing up for these Christian ethical positions of enshrining the importance of the family, of the local, you know, community, and of course the dignity of the worker and work itself. So I think, I mean, this, to me, this is a very interesting kind of historical perspective on some of the things that, again, I know at least allegedly, right? I mean, we're not gonna we're not gonna legislate or 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 try to argue whether or not these these things explicitly fit in some kind of Catholic model uh, today. But but I think you know you you certainly could make an argument, uh, especially on subsidiarity type grounds. So one one of the last things I want to ask you about um, before we go is this idea of. Um, this idea that uh, you like corporatism, but yet at the same time, you know, we're we're interested in subsidiarity and we're interested in making the medium to small size businesses the the primary, um, you know, the, the primary business in in the country. So how how does the how do those two things fit together? I mean, when I hear corporatism, I think, okay, well, you know, we've got the 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 boards of these of these industries, right? They uh, or, or these large companies, right? They they come up with some representatives, and those representatives explicitly go and sit on boards that communicate directly with the government and and sort of make suggestions about policy and stuff like this. I mean, you know, how, if I'm if I'm this mom and pop shop, you know, how how am I supposed to, you know, how am I supposed to feel comfortable that that my interests are going to be met when you know it seems like these 
very large company, large businesses have this direct line to the government. Not that I'm saying it's any different now in the U.S. I mean, come on, you know. But why, why is that? Why do those two things fit together? Well, firstly, I'd make the distinction in the corporatist model that corporate or corporation doesn't mean corporation in the business or American sense. A corporation in the corporatist sense means a an interest group, a, a collection of businesses or actors joining together to – maybe they're in a related field or industry getting a seat at the table in the government. So you would have a quote-unquote corporation for, say, auto manufacturers, but then on the flip side of that, you would have a corporation for auto workers. right? So there's always equal representation on both sides, and then the government acts as an intermediary to uh, – help everyone come up with a policy that's generally agreeable regarding wages, production uh, levels, prices. It's it's all about ensuring that class collaboration, not conflict. And what I'd well, say so is – just, just to stop you real quick, I think what's sure. so interesting about that is that one of the big complaints a lot of people have about the way our system works now is is that there, there's – you know if you have the money, you can buy access, right? Right. And so what you're saying is – now, by, by creating these boards and, and this more political um, kind of system for getting representation from everybody, then you kind of just take the money out of it and you just say, well, everybody's going to have a seat at the table, you know, and OK, there's politics in, you know, which which, um, you know, which industries represented in which way and, and who, who gets to come in and, and be the actual voice in the room for that specific industry. But at least it's not. Uh, you know, whoever has, you know, whoever has the, the lowest fixed cost per unit, right? Right. And it's also important to think of it in our system now when a union and a and a business go together to negotiate, it's a combative thing. They're fighting with each other and they're both trying to get the one up. You know, one's trying to pull the rug over the other, trying to get the better deal. Uh, and it's it has nothing to do with the good of the nation, the good of the people, the good of the state. When you have the corporatist system, you have the state acting as an or you know on whatever level, be it the federal government, the local government, regional. However, you know according to subsidiarity, whatever it is, you have them working together not in a combative way, but as I said, a collaborative way, working together to say, okay, what's best for, what what's agreeable to both of us, but what is ultimately best for you know society at large, for our community, for our nation. So I think that's another important distinction between you know the, the way we do things now and the way they could be. Uh, but to your other point about so well, what do we want? Do we want the German model or you know the kind of more distributist subsidiarity one, or do we want the corporatist model where things are you know a bit more centralized? And my answer to that might not be satisfying, but I think it it's a it's a case by case scenario. So in Germany. Going back to how I was talking about the importance of the region, of the of the state, that is something intrinsic to the German character. Regionalism is a very important you know, aspect of German identity of everyday life. So a model of this you know, this German model, this more distributist uh, subsidiarity-based model works for them versus, say, in Portugal or Austria, this smaller nations where the region doesn't mean as much, it's – more acceptable for the government to take a larger leading role in helping the unions, the business, the different aspects, the different corporate, you know, organic units of society come together and put together a plan to move the country forward. 
So I think in the American context, the German model would work better because federalism is deeply ingrained into our national character. States' rights are very important. I, I would I would argue. I mean, I think the states should have, you know, a reasonable amount of power. So I'm sure you would agree. But um. Yeah, and I mean, and then, I mean, this is this is just the the fundamentals of subsidiarity. And I think what, right. what what sometimes gets missed is the the practical part of it, right? The practical part of it is, well, okay, if if we're going to um, ensure that the the lower levels of society have more control over the things that they are competent to do, whereas the top level is only dealing with things that that really nobody else can handle, right? That, that that's appropriate to them. Well, somebody has to set that up, and of course, you know, the people at the top are going to be have to be the ones that set it up, and so it's it it this you know we we get this idea that it's oh, the federalist system works great, you know, and it's like, well, really, I think that the problem is, is that they didn't have the federal level wasn't strong enough to ensure subsidiarity would would continue to exist. I mean, yeah. here in the U.S. context. Right. And right. and so what you actually needed sort of um, maybe maybe it's not intuitive, but what we actually needed was the the federal level to have more control over who was going to deal with which sphere of uh, you know, economic or, or social policy. And, and that's how we got to the point where we're at, where the federal government is supposed to handle everything. Right. I mean, to sum it up, I think what you're saying is there was a little too much gray area left. There weren't enough clear duties defined for the, the state versus the federal government. Yeah. There it's was like, a lot left undefined. They complain about the problem. Commerce Clause, but it's like, well, yeah. the, the Commerce Clause was right for the picking, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You leave these back doors in and yeah. then you get what we have, which is unfortunate. Sure. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate your time, Francis, and thanks thanks for joining me. Thanks for kind of uh, you know informing me about all of this history of um, of, of Germany and and understanding kind of how things can go right. I mean, I think I think this is uh, is an important thing. Hayek Hayek said that as much as I disagree with Hayek now, but I think he at one point when he was talking about uh, macro macro theory, he said you know we have to in order to understand how things can go wrong, we have to understand how they can go right. Right. Um, and, and I think it makes a ton of sense. And I think there needs to be more of this kind of uh, positive discussion. In other words, what, what do we want? Not 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 critical always. Right. Well, not what well, not what we don't want, but what we want. Right. And what what can go well, what can go right, what can improve. Uh, and and I think it's it's quite obvious that if we have this idea that we're going to um lean on the Catholic social teaching of the church with uh, subsidiarity, solidarity, uh, the universal destination of goods. And, and, and like you say, maybe in a practical sense, right, this, this idea of a, of a corporatist model um, for, for the, uh, you know, the setup of the government itself. Uh, it, it seems like, um, you know, we, we, maybe we could, uh, couldn't do a whole lot better than, than studying, um, you know, Germany and some of these other countries uh, around that time. So I appreciate your time, Francis. And I thank everybody for listening. I really appreciate everybody checking out the show and, and listening. I think there's a lot of uh, great stuff out there. And I, I try to do as many interviews as I could possibly get, because I think there's, there's so much knowledge locked up in, um, these, uh, zoomer kids and, and, uh, other millennials like myself that, you know, they, they don't have this, this fancy degree, uh, you know, this terminal degree, but they, they've just, for some reason they spent, you know, 80 hours a week, 
uh, from age 12 to 16, you know, reading about nothing but, you know, the Cold War Germany and stuff like that. And so we got to unlock this. It's great yeah, stuff. When you spend autistic amounts of time reading about uh, obscure Catholic political parties in Weimar Germany, you come out with a little with little trinkets of knowledge, you know, these little golden nuggets. Yeah. Of course, that you can Francis share with is everybody. not. Francis is not mocking uh, autistic people there. It's uh, it's obviously internet not. speak. It's yeah. it's internet speak, obviously. Yeah. It's a joke. All right. Well, hey, thanks again. Yeah, of course, of course. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. All right, man. Well, thanks.